invite you to turn in your Bibles to Esther chapter 5. Esther is just about smack dab in the middle of your Bibles, maybe a little bit to the left if you see the Psalms. And we'll be reading a larger portion. We've been working through a kind of mini-series, not, not preaching every verse of the book of Esther, but I plan to do one more uh, sermon with the conclusion of the book of Esther. But uh, today we come to kind of the middle and slightly beyond that Esther chapter 5, verse 9 through 6, verse 13. This is God's holy, inspired word. Let's give our attention to it. Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home and sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. And then Haman said, Even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I'm invited by her together with the king. Yet all of this is worth nothing to me. So as long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate, then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made. In the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. And starting in verse, chapter 6. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's units who'd guarded the threshold, who'd sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows he'd prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. Let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said. And do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house mourning with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh of all his friends everything that had happened to him, then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you've begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. This has been the reading of God's word. Let's ask for his blessing on it. Lord, we come tonight uh, before your word uh, as a weak people, as a broken 
um, people in many ways needing to see your hand, Lord, that's often hidden to us. Lord, we pray that you would guide us along the signposts of your grace, that the path that often looks obscured uh, of your grace would become evident, Lord, as we see the beauty and the glory of Jesus uh, set before us as anticipated in this story. And Lord, would you glorify yourself as you show us your son. We need your spirit for this. We ask that you would penetrate our hearts and set us on fire, Lord, as we believe these truths and are changed and want to serve you and love you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the troubles of being a Christian is not that God makes too small promises to us, but that he makes such enormous promises to us. That he says things like in the book of Revelation, that we are anticipating a day when Jesus will come, uh, the Lamb will conquer all of his enemies, and we will live in glory with him forever. The book of Corinthians says, kind of as a rebuke, uh, Paul says when the Corinthians were struggling to make decisions in the church, don't you realize that you are going to judge the angels, Paul says? Uh, we are told that we have our names written on an inheritance to inherit the whole new creation, that this world is just a short anticipation of the glory of the new creation where we will live eternally with our Savior, and that that is the most defining reality. And the problem, of course, is we look at all of that that looks spectacular, and we say, how does that change life for me now. Where are you now, Lord? How are you acting in the presence of my griefs and disappointments and things that don't make sense? Lord, what are you doing now? The people of God are going to anticipate that Esther has taken them on a trajectory to overcome their enemies. You remember that we've set up the story saying that Haman has accomplished this plot to destroy every Jew on one day set on the calendar. And if you kill a Jewish person on that day, you get to take all of their possessions. And there's this dread building in the story. But Esther has set on course this other plan to undo that. She started this series of feasts. And so you have this sense, this growing anticipation, something good is on the way. And then this text happens where the enemy of God's people seems to be completely overcoming and planning the destruction of Mordecai. And there's this sense of dread that sets in in the text. Uh, writing about his wife uh, that had died. C.S. Lewis in the book A Grief Observed says this, not that I think in, I'm in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not so there's no God after all, but so this is what God is really like. Deceive yourself no longer. And this man writes with an acute grief. It's difficult to read this book, the kind of disorientation that he's experiencing because of the loss of joy, Davidman. But he's coming up into this deep and dark reality that God does guide our lives in every minute detail. On the best days where things seem on the surface to be good, God is in control, but God is also guiding our lives when things seem to be 
completely wrong. And so the Psalms cry out in agony, Psalm 22, why are you so far from saving me from the voice of my groanings? Oh God, I cry to you by day and there is no answer by night and I find no rest. Uh, Martin Luther wrote about the hiddenness of God. Lord, where are you when we seek you most acutely? You seem to be absent. The psalmist in Psalm 22 says, all who see me mock me, they make mouths at me as they wag their heads. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him if he delights in him. And as we anticipate the destruction of Mordecai, this is the kind of taunting that those listening to this story could have. Where is God when we need him most? Where is God when it looks like his providence is completely askew and everything seems to be broken. I want us to see in our text tonight a God who seems silent in the story, a God silent in the story, but then second, God's deliverance in the details, and third, honor in the place of shame. A God silent in the story, God's deliverance in the details second, and then third, honor in the place of shame. So the story of Esther has already framed Haman as this great enemy of God. If you've forgotten who Haman is, Haman is this very proud man. He's made decrees like, he's, he's uh, second in command in all of Medo-Persia. He's made decrees like, every time I walk past people, they need to bow to honor me. Uh, he loves his own reputation, and he loves the position that he's in, and he's completely set against Mordecai, who is uh, the cousin of Esther in this story. Mordecai has a position of authority. It says that he sits in the king's gate in Susa, which is the capital of this great uh, empire of Medo-Persia, and uh, Haman and Mordecai become these mortal, literally mortal enemies and Haman in this text is pushed over the brink of frustration and anger against Mordecai. Haman has been invited to this party, which we read he mentions. He's so proud of the fact that he got invited to the party, but he goes to this first party that Esther invites him to, and then he comes out and he's just riding super high. He's really, really excited with where he's at, but then comes past Mordecai. And you can imagine the scene, the whole city bowing and trembling and being afraid of Haman. And there's one person in the whole of Susa who will not bow, who will not tremble in the presence of Haman. And this drives him crazy. Haman cannot stand that his mortal enemy would not honor him in the way that he desires. And so he goes home and he gathers his uh, retinue of advisors. This happens in the book of Esther multiple times. When there's a difficult decision to be made, you remember in chapter 1, uh, the, the queen Vashti uh, uh, refuses to honor the king, and so he gathers this retinue of eunuchs to make, help him make a decision. And it's similar here where uh, Haman gathers this retinue of people to come up with a plan to destroy his enemy Mordecai. So it's his wife and these friends that he gathers. And he starts to list for them the things that he's accomplished. He wants to kind of puff himself up and demonstrate how great he is. And in this time, uh, in the ancient world, the things that he lists would put you above everybody else. This is specifically the kind of uh, position and status that you would desire. So he lists his riches. You remember when he wants the uh, Jewish people to be destroyed, he promises 10,000 talents of silver that he 
will pay to the king if he will destroy the Jews. So he's a very wealthy man. He tells them about his children, the number of his sons. It doesn't say in our text, but we're going to find out he had 10 sons. Uh, It's a little bit funny. The commentators point out that surely of all the people that he was talking to, his wife would already know that, that he had 10 sons. But he's puffing himself up and talking about his position. But then he says, I've been promoted above all the people in all of Susa, and I've been invited to these special parties, but it means nothing to me because this Mordecai refuses to tremble in my presence. And so the idea is posed, verse 14, prepare an executioner stand, in essence, uh, 50 cubits high. It would be, if you uh, were to do the conversion, 70 feet, 75 feet tall. So I was working on this message on Friday, and I decided to try to figure out what 75 feet would be. So I climbed up back here with the tape measure, and uh, the distance from the ground to the top of the screen is 20 feet. So multiply that up uh, another about four uh, total, and you get a 75-foot method of execution. Uh, Haman is not interested in a lethal injection. He's not interested in sneaking some poison into Mordecai's drink at night. He wants to eradicate his reputation. He wants to put him on display in a shameful way and say, this is what happens to people who cross me. And if you're a Jew, this is what I do to your champion. You put your trust in Mordecai. You think he is going to help you in the situation. This is how people who believe those things are treated. It's a loud, ostentatious death. It's a death that would cause great shame as someone is displayed as dead and as an enemy of Haman. And again, if you're hearing this story as a Jew somewhere in Medo-Persia, this is where you think, man, where is this going? God is supposedly active all the time And yet this is what is coming. Where are you, God, and what are you doing when the one that we're looking to has had an executionary time set? The next morning it says that Haman is going to go to the king and say, put him on this gallows. And if you're watching as someone who looks up to Mordecai, Lord, where are you? What are you doing? Remember uh, Naomi's experience in the book of Ruth. She looked at the providential hand of God. It wasn't that she didn't believe that God was in control. It was that she went away to Moab, and when she came home, she was uh, broken as a woman. Her husband had died. Her sons had died. And in her mind, as she puts it, I went away full, and Lord, you brought me back empty. And you remember, it's not just the facts that are important, but the identity that she starts to associate with. She can't even be called Naomi anymore, which means pleasant. But as she looks at the trajectory of her story, she says, Lord, you have dealt very bitterly with me. And the temptation can be, as this part of the story comes up, Lord, I know now, because of what's happening to Mordecai, that you are not doing good to me. And we face this precise same question as Christians. We believe that every single moment, every atom, every aspect, every day of our lives is directed and led and prepared for us 
by God. And this provokes a great problem for us because we sense that there is things that on the face of it look deeply evil. Again, coming back to Lewis, broken by the grief of cancer claiming his bride. This is the kind of God that I serve, the kind of God who would allow this thing that looks dark and evil. Lord, when the executioner's stand is being built, and it's just a matter of time before Mordecai is shamed and killed and overcome, Lord, where are you? Lewis writes about the misery of suffering. Part of the every misery is, so to speak, the misery's shadow or reflection. The fact that I don't merely suffer, but I have to keep on thinking about the fact that I suffer. And the loops in his mind that he'd go through thinking, Lord, where are you? What are you doing? How can you allow this kind of dark circumstance? So we see first in our passage a God who seems and appears to be silent. But second, I want us to see God's deliverance in and through the details. God's deliverance in the details. Notice chapter 6 begins... On that night, the king could not sleep. Um, You and I have probably had many sleepless nights where there were different things that kept us awake. Uh, God appoints this specific evening for the king of all 127 provinces of Medo-Persia not to be able to sleep. And notice how all the details work together to accomplish God's end, to turn things around for his people. The king can't sleep, and he calls for a certain book to be read to him. It says it's the book of the chronicles of his kingdom. Uh, If you're a Presbyterian, we in our meetings keep something called the book of our minutes. Uh, And if you ever need something to go to sleep, I would highly encourage you to read all of the minutes of our session, uh, because I'm sure you'd find many, many interesting facts in there. And it's something like that, where the king is having this long record read to him. But in God's amazing design, who does he stumble on? the story of Mordecai's deliverance when he found out there were these two people plotting the destruction of Ahasuerus. And so he says, well, what has been done to honor him? On this night, on the one night he can't sleep, on the night he's asked for a record of the accomplishments of his kingdom, on the one location in all of those, uh, that minutes book where Mordecai's actions are recorded, he says, How have we rewarded this person? And they say, not at all. And then amazingly, at the very moment the text will tell us, when Haman is joyfully running into the court to make this plan to destroy Mordecai, the servants say, well, Haman is coming into your court. It's remarkable to me that He's called in and asked again to give advice. How should we destroy this wicked Mordecai? How should we uh, destroy him in his mind, according to um, Haman? How should we, on the flip side, honor the person that has saved the life of the king? And Haman says to himself, who would the king delight to honor such as me? I mean, imagine if he'd spoken that word outside, right? If he'd said, who does the, the, uh, the king delight to honor as much as me? It would have been a completely different story. The king would have said, no, 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 I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about 
Mordecai, every single aspect of the details of this story is told very, very carefully, and God is writing this very, very specifically in a cascade of details, the domino effect that will lead to then this plan. And remarkably, this is what he designs, verse 7. For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, the horse the king has ridden on, whose head a royal crown is set. Let robes and a horse be handed over to the one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. Let them lead him on a horse through the square of the city, proclaiming these things before him. Haman chooses everything in a specific way that he wants to experience. He thinks to himself, I'm the most honorable person, and he desires all these specific ways to demonstrate how great he is. And moment by moment, detail by detail, God is preparing the reversal of the story, the honoring of his enemy, the one who on that same day anticipated being put up on a massive gallows to be destroyed and shamed the whole story changes in just a few set of verses. And what you're supposed to, the effect you're supposed to have in this story, uh, the translators of the, uh, the Septuagint, for instance, are so affected by the fact that the story never mentions God's name that they actually attribute the sleeplessness, for instance, of the king to God. It says in verse 1 in the Septuagint, on that night God made the sleep to, to flee from the king. The effect of these seeming coincidences on us as we hear the story is to say only some kind of supernatural action could align these details so spectacularly to reverse that which Haman has planned and set in motion to destroy Mordecai. There's this kind of stunning effect that's intended on us. But the problem again is that we don't live reading a story about our lives and understanding how God does this. We live so much of our lives more in a sense of shame and destruction and anticipation of what seems like evil than seeing God's hand specifically at work. And so we question oftentimes, why, God, did you do it this way? Why did you work in this secret and hidden way rather than publishing your victory? Why don't you just tell me the story in advance? And so we doubt God's work, and we question how he could be gloriously working his plan the whole time. So I want us to see third, then, honor in the place of shame, honor in the place of shame. Uh, the turnaround could not be more dramatic. Imagine what you're, again, expecting as a reader. You're expecting in the morning for your uh, a victor, the person that you look up to, to be slaughtered. And instead of being put on this massive gallows to shame Mordecai, you have Mordecai being led through the city in glory and his greatest enemy having to carry the reins of the horse and proclaiming, look, this is what is done to the one the king delights to honor. How does God replace honor in the place of shame? How does he do this? How does this radical transformation happen? Through very mundane, ordinary, common details being set in motion and carefully planned. God's hidden deliverance 
is the way that he often delights to work. He doesn't always work massively in like the Exodus where God's people are led victoriously through a Red Sea, oftentimes very, very hidden, oftentimes working through things that seem totally unimpressive and seemingly cloaked in darkness, very helpfully about the book of Ruth, but I think it applies to Esther as well. This is what John Piper writes. The book was written to help us see the signposts of grace in our lives, the ones that are visible. But it was also, and I think more evidently, written to help us trust God's grace when the clouds are so thick we cannot see the road, let alone the signs of the road. When you cannot see God's hand working and directing and guiding and caring for you and knowing, Lord, can I actually trust you? God is often doing his best work in your life. When he seems completely hidden and absent, when the things seem completely overwhelming, like you will never be able to affect what you believe God has said he's going to do through what he's promised, he's often most at work. And how do you know that? What has God done which was the darkest moment in all of history? Where it seemed like all hope was gone. When God's hand appeared to be most absent at a cross. See, the captain, the victor of his people is not delivered from the most gruesome, shameful death plotted by the arch enemy of Jesus. Yes, Judas is conniving and directing things. Yes, Satan has entered Judas, and all the plans and the rulers are set against Jesus. But we confess exactly that the Father led his Son to a cross. And so Peter will preach this in Acts chapter 2. This Jesus delivered according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And see, the disciples look on that plan in the Gospels and they say, absolutely not. Jesus, you will not go to a cross that's not the way it is supposed to go. And Peter even refuses the crucifixion of Jesus. He says, I'll die before you die. And he just does not get it. And that's because, again, by nature, we function precisely like the disciples, and yet God displays to us his hidden hand over and over again, and most specifically at a cross. Who was the one who did pray and fulfilled the words of Psalm 22? My God, my God, why? Where are you in the dark? Jesus cries out and accomplishes the certification of the confidence that you can know every time that God appears to be completely absent. He is not far from you. He is not pulled away from you. And so Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, we do not lose sight, though our outer selves are wasting away. Why? 
this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us the eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And very importantly, he finishes saying, as we look to the things that we do not see. And the Lord is telling us, when God does not seem to be active in the particular details of our lives, he is often most active and he's sustaining us as a whole church, and he's directing us toward our eternal glory. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2, among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The plan that's set in motion to destroy Jesus is the very means by which you are brought with him and ushered into glory. So don't tonight look to the things how they appear and seem to be on the surface of things, set your heart and your mind on the eternal, conquered, uh, confident inheritance that you have in Jesus. Paul will tell us because of who Jesus is and where he is now, we will be there also. And as firmly as Jesus is resurrected, as he's sitting at the right hand of God, you know that God will take you there also, and there you will be forever. And that which seemed like shame and darkness and humiliation in this life will be reversed as we see Christ face to face and enjoy the glory of heaven eternally. Do not be tricked, dear Christian, by what the world looks at as foolishness. We impart a hidden knowledge which is not perceivable on the face of things, a crucified Savior who now enjoys resurrection and as surely as God has worked through a hidden plan in that way, to bring us to glory. He will accomplish that purpose in your life as well. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we do pray for the days and the nights of disorientation, Lord. We pray for the days when things seem like they've fallen off their tilt and um, their axis, and it, it appears, Lord, on the face of it, like you have pulled yourself out of guiding your church, directing us to eternal glory with you. Lord, would you please give us the faith that looks beyond what's seen? Lord, connect us to our Savior. Lord, I pray uh, people uh, wondering and disoriented and grieving tonight, Lord, would be reminded of their eternal satisfaction and joy in Jesus. And Lord, please help us to see that you do work, Lord, through the things that on the face of it look evil or to reverse that, to bring glory uh, to Jesus and even, Lord, to honor and glorify your church in union with him. And Lord, please work this supernaturally. It doesn't come to us by nature. We pray that your spirit would do it. We do ask you for all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and sing how deep the Father's love for us.
Dear people of God, he smiles on you because of who you are in his son. He blesses you tonight and gives uh, the last word of benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance on you and give you his peace. Amen.